Hi, welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. I'm super excited. My guest today is Michelle Gaspar, who does a little bit of everything. I asked her how to introduce herself, and she said that. I do a little bit of everything. She's a veterinarian. She's also a psychotherapist. So those don't seem like they go together. And yet, as we know, they would be a lovely combination to have all in one person. So welcome, Michelle. Thanks so much for joining me today. And it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about that, how you went from being a veterinarian to exploring some of these other interests? Certainly, certainly. So as a... As a veterinarian, I actually actually had a, a career before veterinary medicine. So my first career was as a reporter with the Chicago Tribune. So I have an undergraduate degree in journalism. And then I got to a point where there was something else tugging on my heart, and that was veterinary medicine. And so I pursued veterinary medicine, and it was pretty clear in talking to colleagues and certainly then becoming involved as a consultant in feline internal medicine on the Veterinary Information Network that um, many of my colleagues were suffering from depression, anxiety, imposter syndrome. They just weren't happy. Mm -hmm. And I have always been interested in psychology. My father was a very... He, he was a he was a very involved reader in in psychology. So Freud and Jung were always in the house, and I decided that I wanted to know a little bit more about mental health issues, psychology, always with the intent of helping veterinarians. Mm -hmm. So I attended graduate school, have a master's from Loyola Chicago and have now a private psychotherapy practice. Uh, the bulk of my work is in writing, lecturing, and trying to move, a, a, I think, a better understanding, a broader understanding of mental health issues as they impact veterinarians, veterinary staff, and other support personnel. Yeah, it's a it's a big issue. And it's something that until I started exploring, I had no idea how common it was and how profoundly it really affects people. Absolutely. So the topic I really wanted to explore with you today is self compassion. And I think that is one that people really struggle with. Mm -hmm. So can you just start with like, what's our textbook definition of self compassion? The self-compassion definition that I like and use uh, the most is actually the definition by Dr. Kristen Neff. Dr. Neff is at the University of Texas, Austin. She's considered to be probably the world's top researcher in the area of self-compassion. And she defines self-compassion as being able to treat ourselves as our best friends would when times are tough. Mm -hmm. And so that tenderness, that warmth, that ability to hold feelings that our best friends would when we're most vulnerable is the same as self-compassion. And that's showing us, ourselves, tenderness. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating that we do talk to ourselves so differently 
than we would talk to our best friend at times. And it's a fascinating thing that we gravitate toward that. So many people believe, like, I have to be tough on myself or else, oh, you know, I won't achieve and I won't do. But all of the research really shows that the more compassionate we are to ourselves, the more we achieve and do. And, and the success actually follows self-compassion as opposed to self-criticism, which seems to be what we're good at. Absolutely. And, um, you know, self-compassion, and when you and I were, were speaking about this program, I know I wrote that um, I also wanted to talk about perfectionism mm -hmm. because I think what you so eloquently stated is really the crux of the problem. Most people who go into the healthcare professions, um, and I think veterinarians and veterinary technicians have this in spades, mm -hmm. is they are perfectionists. Mm -hmm. And there's been a tremendous amount of work over the last 30 years that has been done in the area of perfectionism. Perfectionism is considered to be what's referred to by psychologists as an early maladaptive schema, or an EMS. And these early maladaptive schemas, and there are scores of them, are placed into our heads, if you were, to say, by the time we're about five years old. And they usually come into our consciousness by either the words or the actions of our earliest caregivers. Mm -hmm. So parents, extended family members, teachers. And perfectionism comes from one of two ways of thinking about ourselves. Either we consider ourselves to be defective and so we're constantly trying to prove that we are not defective. Or we have been congratulated for being a good girl and boy, and we desire in our adult lives to keep hearing that praise. The problem with perfectionism is that not only are we attuned to external criticism, so when, when people bring up our shortcomings, we definitely take offense and we're hurt. But perfectionists are under the thumb of a vicious internal critic. And the vicious internal critic says, you can never do enough. You can never be good. You are always a failure. And so it's the internal critic that desperately needs to be tamped down by self-compassion, mm -hmm. which says, none of us are perfect. We are all human. We all make errors. The biggest pushback that I receive from veterinarians when I talk about perfectionism is they say, you know, if I don't strive to be perfect, my patients will die. Mm -hmm. And one thing about perfectionists is that they lack a, a gray area. No one who has gone to veterinary school that certainly I know of is going to just take the path of least resistance. We desperately want to fix our patients. We want to make them feel better. We want to reduce client grief over patient illness and death. And it's actually been proved that perfectionists, rather than make fewer medical errors, perfectionists actually make more medical errors. Mm -hmm. And that's because a perfectionist is always hypervigilant and loses the sense of the large picture. And when we're hypervigilant, when our adrenaline is at full tilt, 
we fall into the trap of not being aware of what's taking place in the moment around us. And that's when medical decisions can be made incorrectly. Yeah. So the, 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 the two go together. The antidote for perfectionism is self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's fascinating how it really changes things because I certainly have some perfectionist tendencies. <laughs> and all the things you were saying about the early maladaptive schema, it is those early messages that somehow, you know, you got to measure up, you got to measure up. And we internalize them and we carry them forward. And we're always struggling against these schemes that nobody else is really measuring us by. And yet, (laughs) except ourselves. And, you know, I, I used to, I used to concur with the thought that many psychologists had that perfectionism did carry with it some benefits. So perfectionists tend to do well in school. They tend to do well on the job. So there are perks of being a perfectionist. But the work done by Dr. Paul Hewitt at the University of British Columbia has basically proved that perfectionism has very little going for it. As a matter of fact, perfectionism drives um, depression, anxiety, Um, suicidal ideation, even suicide and hopelessness. And so we all need to realize that there is no perfection in in this world. It, Mm -hmm. It is an imperfect world, and we're imperfect people who are only trying to do their best. And I I definitely believe that veterinarians and veterinary technicians, support staff, every day try to make the world a better place. I I want to just briefly say that I'm also involved as part of my work. I'm involved in a mindfulness meditation group for veterinarians and veterinary support staff uh, that is on the Veterinary Information Network. And and we have a couple we have a couple sayings in the group. And the first is that we can only do what time and resources allow. And I think that's very, very important for us, particularly in veterinary medicine. You know, clients have legitimate uh, financial concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they come with histories and backstories that we don't know. Sometimes our own, and we, you know, we have a hard time thinking about this, but sometimes we're limited too. You know, we don't have a knowledge base that we need. Our hospitals can't afford the, the equipment that would, you know, provide a level of care. So we have to do with time and resources allow. And when we can get clear with that, when we can accept it and still say, no matter what the challenges are, I'm just going to try to do the best I can do on any given day, you know, we're well, we're well ahead of the curve. And that's self-compassion and action. Yeah. So what are some initial steps you encourage people to do when they're trying to get into that mindset? Like, how do you help them move there? I think... I think the biggest issue is to be un- to be comfortable with our discomfort. And you know, it takes a lot of self it takes a lot of self-awareness to be able to listen to our thoughts and say, you know, that's my internal critic. That internal critic was my mother, my father, my grandmother, my aunt, my sister, my brother. You know, somebody put that put that into my head. And I'm just reacting to it. So I think veterinarians, veterinary staff, 
we we tend not to want to avail ourselves to mental health counseling. We think we can kind of white knuckle it by ourselves. Mm-hmm. But if we find ourselves, you know, really in the throes of perfectionism and we we're beating up ourselves, um, we we realize there's a pattern. I think it behooves us to make ourselves better caregivers by taking care of ourselves. Right. I think having, I think having a meditation practice uh, definitely helps. Uh, what meditation allows us to do is basically tolerate our thoughts. So meditation over time allows us to have distress tolerance. So mm-hmm. our thoughts are only thoughts. They carry no weight except the weight that we give them. And by a daily meditation practice, which, you know, a lot of us as, as Westerners push back, you know, we want to be able to eat mindfully, run mindfully, walk mindfully, work mindfully, but we don't often want to do the hard work of just sitting quietly mm-hmm. for 10 or 20 minutes and just having the thoughts come and go. And then the third is to be able to call up to ourselves times when a good friend was tender to us, you know, and, and a good friend doesn't collude with us. So if if we really do something that's egregious, that's, you know, beyond the pale, a good friend are going to, is not going to say, Oh, that's okay. You know, that that's all right. Just kind of let it slide. They're going to be appropriately challenging, but in a way that's not judgmental. Perfectionists live under a constant threat of being judged and being judged to be inadequate. Yeah. And that all goes back to our like social connection piece of if they see that I'm imperfect and, and I'm they'll they'll discover I'm an imposter and I really don't deserve this, you know, credit that everyone's giving me and everyone will hate me. And none of that's realistic, and yet that's what the saboteur in your head is busy radiating in yes. these moments. I think the the idea of meditation helping us tolerate our thoughts and become more aware of them is, is really fascinating. Um, somebody once said to me that our goal is to learn to notice, name, and navigate our emotions, and, and you have to sort of start with noticing. Like, we're often hooked and we get swept away before we know it. And I was at a conference recently, and I started with a story where I had, you know, just the, the crazy, terrible 48-hour period. And it, it, it ended with a flat tire, and I'm standing outside my car looking at it and going, huh, meditation works because I was not sobbing in the parking lot. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's what it is. It gave me a little bit of distance from this spot of all of the stress and all of the strain and then one more thing. And I was just curious, like, oh, wow, the entire day is changed, but I can handle that. And that was not my past. My past would have been crying in the parking lot. (laughs) Yes. And and you know the, the the feeling I think the the misconception about meditation is that over time we don't feel, and and that's incorrect. What we do is we we do feel, but we don't get hooked by the feeling. Mm-hmm. And most of us go through life being very very reactive. Mm-hmm. So you know a, a client comes in angry, and we're immediately hooked by that anger, where over time 
with a meditation practice, and we use a, a secular contemplative practice, so we, we, don't, we don't teach a spiritual tradition, over time, you can, you can hear the anger, but you're, you're not sucked in by it. And so you have less of a tendency to get into, you know, these spirals that we hear that take place in exam rooms between either the veterinary technician or the, or the veterinarian and the, and the client. And it just doesn't go anywhere that's helpful. Right. Right. And, and we don't even see those things right as they're starting until we take some time and practice it and figure out exactly what are those signs? What are the things here in this environment? So are there any downsides to self-compassion? I certainly can't think of any, but can you? No, there are no downsides to self-compassion. The only, the only downside comes when we confuse self-compassion with collusion and basically colluding with ourselves. You know, what, what self-compassion demands is that it demands a, a, a truthfulness, you know, owning, owning up to something that did not go well, and really just sitting with it. Mm-hmm. So I think for people who confuse self-compassion with, with collusion, there is a huge downside because, you know, we, we then begin to believe our own uh, misconceptions of what happened. But self-compassion can only help us be more genuine, more open, more vulnerable. And who doesn't want that in a healthcare provider? Yes. Yeah. And if we add in all the other pieces of you'll be happier at work, you'll make better decisions, you'll be more productive, it's a win, 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 win. Indeed. So if we're looking at self-compassion and, and we have that whole struggle of, well, you know, lives, lives depend on me being perfect, how do we become a little bit more comfortable with that gray area? The, the idea of doing what time and resources allow, are there beginning steps that you can encourage people to think about or what are, what are the initial thoughts to lean into that and i i love the concept of leaning in because that's i think where we really do forge connections and relationships when you know that we have to have good boundaries but we also have to be willing to lean into what's presented so i think many veterinarians and veterinary support staff suffer because they have an idea in their head about what needs to be done. And that thought pattern bumps up against what might be the client's reality. So I think to be curious about where the client is coming from, to try to have a broader view of a backstory that we don't know you know, and, and oftentimes, and, and I've heard this on social media um, over the last couple of weeks, sometimes we think, well, you know, they drive such and such a car. It's usually a, you know, pretty exotic late model. They should want to spend X amount of money. We don't know the backstory, mm-hmm. And so we start creating our own stories in our heads, mm-hmm. which may or may not be accurate. 
So to take the first step is just not to create a story. To listen to what the client presents and to realize that we are basically there to evaluate, assess, and make recommendations. When I've said that, and I've, I've had colleagues put that into practice, they say their stress level reduces about 70 to 80%. Awesome. Because we think we have to fix. Mm-hmm. We think we have to have the magic bullet. We think we have to do thus and so. And all we have to do as physicians, as veterinarians, is to see what's in front of us, put it all together in a picture that the client can understand and make recommendations and, and really put the ball in their court. I think most veterinarians and technicians suffer because somehow they feel that they either haven't done a good job explaining things or they haven't done a good job with recommendations. There's always a failure component of it. Mm-hmm. As as a veterinarian, when I did have a clinical practice, my stress level reduced considerably when I was able to do what I was what I was trained to do and and put it in the client's hands. And yes, you know, there's quite a bit of information now about, you know, moral distress among veterinarians and veterinary technicians. The Boston Globe just ran a story two days ago that was picked up by national media. But our moral distress, I think, stems from having a need and a desire to control outcomes. And that has been a very long, hard road for many of us to accept that we have less control over a situation than we think. And much suffering to us comes from the thought that somehow we can control it. Which is so true. I mean, just that the idea being that the suffering isn't the problem that the animal is experiencing, but our thoughts about that problem and where our role plays into it. Right. And, you know, that's the core of, so on the Veterinary Information Network in the meditation group, we, we practice mindfulness meditation and mindfulness meditation comes from Siddhartha Gautama, the the Buddha who lived about 2,500 years ago. And, and, you know, he said that, you know, our suffering comes from, from, four, from four places. You know, we either have delusion, we, we have greed, and I'll, I'll go back to that in a minute. We, we don't like what we have, and we want what we don't have. And so, you know, the delusion could be, I, I can control this situation. I have the power to control it. And, and the greed is about what we want to have happen, which may be undoable, you know, to the, to the client, might have, you know, might be more expensive than they can legitimately afford. And so it just might not happen. So I think those are all things to, you know, to, to keep in mind. I like that breakdown. Um, just looking at it from those different perspectives and really trying to just accept, you know, the role is to listen, evaluate, assess, and make recommendations. That's yes. doable. That's within the skill set. That yes. is um, 
very, very valuable. I mean, it is doing a service. So it's not like you're dropping the ball. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, as, as doctors, that, that is our job. Tell me what is wrong and tell me what I can do about it. And, and it's, it's up to me to decide what I can or can't do. So by incorporating those kinds of thoughts, it does reduce stress, it reduces compassion fatigue, it reduces anxiety, depression. We need to be able to be okay. And I know it's very difficult. I've I've been on both sides of the exam table. So I know how it is to be a client. I know how it is to be a veterinarian. But I think we have to realize that the client is ultimately in control. And for most of us, that's a thought that doesn't sit well. (laughs) I think that's true. I think for for many animal care professionals, the goal is to make it right. Very, very true. I think this has been a really awesome conversation with a lot of very specific ideas that people can think about in their own lives and see how they play out. Um, If people wanted to learn more about you and the work you do, how could they do that? Well, there are a couple of ways of getting in touch with me. The easiest is to email me. And my veterinary email is pretty easy. It's felinedoc, F-E-L-I-N-E-D-O-C, at sbcglobal.net. I can also be reached through the Veterinary Information Network, so www.vin.com. And I get around to conferences and meetings, and if anyone wants to uh, reach out, I would love to talk with them. This is a, I think it's a very important concept. You know, my goal is to kind of move the needle off the well-worn, we're just suffering. We have a great privilege in veterinary medicine Mm -hmm. um, to really make an impact, not only in the lives of animals, but in the lives of people too. And I think a lot of the reason why we are seeing very reactive clients in our hospitals is that as a society and as a culture, uh, we simply have lost many of what used to be daily occurrences where we've just rubbed shoulders with one another. So, you know, we, we can order our groceries online. We can order our movies from, from Netflix. We don't have to really engage with people and there's a real hunger that we that we can still provide because you know until we really go to telemedicine people still have to bring their companion animals to us and some of the most heartfelt memories that I have in my life in clinical practice was in connecting to people and and making making their days a little better. That mm-hmm. is what we have control about. You know, I tell I tell veterinarians that, you know, all we can control is what we say and how we say it. And how people take it, we really we really have no control over that. So I think we have the privilege to relieve suffering. I think we have the privilege of being kind. I think we have the privilege of being responsible and caring. And there are very, very few ways of livelihood in this world that offer that much. Yeah. I think that was beautifully stated. 
So thank you for that. I think that was awesome. I will put links in the show notes to the various emails that you shared. And um, so all of that will be there. So thank you so much for joining me on Unleashed today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, it was a it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Subscribe to Unleashed and Work in Home to get each new episode downloaded to your device as soon as it's released. There are lots of great guests and topics ahead. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.